Hi, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Taking Control of Your Diabetes podcast. I am one of your hosts, uh, Dr. Jeremy Pettis, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Steve Edelman. And if you are just tuning in, we are both endocrinologists at the University of California, San Diego, both living with type 1 diabetes since we were 15. Now, today's topic is on pre Diabetes. I love it. We got this down. I point to Steve and he says words. That's great. <laughs> so, you know, why are we talking about this topic? Pre-diabetes. Um, there's a lot of reasons, but I think one of the main ones is it's it's a kind of nebulous diagnosis to people. People will often say, gosh, my doctor told me I'm on the borderline of getting type 2. You know, what does that mean? What's the chances of getting type 2? What does pre-diabetes in of itself uh, mean in terms of your overall health? And importantly, how can you take control of your health to become quote unquote normal or non-pre-diabetic? Diabetic, anything you want to add? Well, I would just say, um, we're going to tell you some statistics right now. Jeremy's going to go through them, but it's extremely common. And an important point I always like to make is there are no symptoms in this quote unquote pre-diabetes uh, stage, but it's a, it's a huge warning sign. And it's also a great time to do something to prevent yourself from progressing to type two. Yeah, and I think I hope that's a theme that comes out today. Is that we're, we're going to talk about a lot of statistics and things that are going to sound kind of negative. You know, this is a, a place of increased risk of cardiovascular disease, etc. But it can really be a wake up call, a call to action, and a chance to get you know your health in order. Uh, so when we kind of go through all these things, it's not to scare people; it's to hopefully to motivate them that this is a perfect time to intervene, and you can make a huge difference in your life and overall health. It's a total silver lining if you get knowledgeable and act to improve your overall health, which is what we all should be doing. Yeah, exactly. All right, you ready for some statistics, Steve? Yes. Okay. So we talk about the epidemic of type 2 diabetes. So first, some stats on type 2 diabetes. So right now, it's estimated about 30 million Americans, um, adults, have type 2 diabetes. And of that, by the way, 90, 95% are type 2, about 5 to 10% are type 1. So definitely, there's more type 2s than type 1s. And about 6,000 people are diagnosed every day with type 2 diabetes. And just to contrast, about 110 folks are diagnosed with type one every day. So, you know, this, these statistics are really referring primarily to type two. Right. All right. So you might say, gosh, 30 million adults type two, that's crazy. Now, when we talk about pre-diabetes, it's estimated that almost a hundred million people in the United States have pre-diabetes. That's one in three adults in the country, which is, you know, kind of the old English professor in college, like look to your left, look to the right, you know, chances are one out of one of you guys has prediabetes. I mean, it's so common. And, and maybe you're sitting there thinking these statistics are a little bit nebulous, but it, it basically means to me that chances are that someone in the family might have it, you know, friends. This is something that's, that's pretty ubiquitous in our society. This is certainly not a rare condition. If you look at the number of folks around the world have been coming down with type 2, it's been growing dramatically, despite many physicians and uh, health organizations talking about this issue for decades, actually. Mm -hmm. Now, so if you take all those, you know, 100 million people or so, about 80% of them, the vast majority, um, have no idea that they have prediabetes. Um, so they're living with this condition that puts them at increased risk of, of, of type 2 diabetes that has its own associated risk with it, and they have no clue. So a lot of what we're going to talk about is, is how do you diagnose it? How do you know that you have prediabetes? It's actually pretty easy to diagnose. And then if you do have it, what can you do to reverse it or kind of keep it in control? So 
first, let's talk a little science, Steve. Like what causes prediabetes? Like when somebody says, you know, why are my blood sugars elevated? What's going on in my body? Like, you know, how would you describe that to somebody? Yes. Well, <clears throat> we don't really know the cause of type 2 diabetes and one step before that pre-diabetes, but there are defects. There's defects in the way insulin lowers the glucose in our bloodstream. We call it insulin resistance. And that's really a very complicated area that people have been researching for years and years, including, you know, uh, Jerry Olefsky, Bob Henry, so many great researchers from around the world. So the body tries to compensate. The, pain, the, the brain says, hey, blood sugars are creeping up a little bit because the insulin's not working well. And what it does as a compensatory mechanism, it tells the pancreas to secrete more insulin. And that higher level of insulin does correct the blood sugar. And that could go on for months, years, and sometimes over a decade, this compensation of higher insulin levels to keep the blood sugars normal. Then at some point, uh, in lay terms, we, we call the, the beta cell poops out, you know, pancreatic exhaustion. And your pancreas just can't keep up and doesn't secrete enough insulin to keep the blood sugar normal. And that's when people present with type 2 diabetes. And it could take 10 years in this abnormal state. During that time period, very importantly, people with prediabetes are developing the other cardiovascular risk factors associated with type 2 that also have no symptoms like high blood pressure, abnormal cholesterol, and typically they're gaining weight in the abdominal area. Sorry for that long no, scientific that, explanation. No, that's it. But, you know, I think, you know, just kind of square one is insulin is a hormone made by the pancreas. And it's really in charge of a lot of things, but one of its main things is taking sugar, glucose, out of the bloodstream and getting it to the tissues that need it, your muscle, your liver, et cetera. And when we say insulin resistance, it just means that that insulin isn't working as well. Um, what used to take one molecule of insulin to move in glucose into the system now takes three. And so that is what we mean by insulin resistance. It's just not working as well. And that is highly you know, associated with obesity. That as people put on more weight, it's as if their body just can't compensate. So these things are generally, you know, they, they run kind of very commonly together. Yeah, and, and just to emphasize once again, it's a certain type of weight that's associated with pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes. We call it central obesity. It's really the high waist versus hip ratio. And if you go in and do fat biopsies, not on me, but maybe you, the fat is different than the fat that's under your subcutaneous tissue. So it's a very specific fat that's associated. And that's why people with prediabetes have a specific body habitus um, with that, just that big gut and the arms and legs may be solid as a rock. And so it's quite different. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so, you know, if you're listening, why should you care? Why should your family member care? Like, what, what are we really talking about here? And I have, you know, written here. We actually have notes on this podcast. I mean, I'm happy about us, and we're, we're adhering to it. You know, Jeremy, you should... the best podcasts are well-organized <laughs> with bullet points and, and the facts. We don't want to just shoot off no, the top of No, I know, but, head. like, some of them I've had notes, and then we just go off the cuff, and, you know, it takes us to a great place. But I'm just, I just want our viewers to know that we've researched this. <laughs> <laughs> of course we, I mean, this is what we live and breathe at our, you know, our jobs. But yeah. So it's, it's, you know, I kind of wrote down here, it's really two different things. Or two main things that I want to get across to people. One is that, yes, it is your, if you have prediabetes, and we're going to talk next about how we define that, if you have prediabetes, it puts you at a very high risk of going on to develop 
type 2 diabetes. And to put some kind of numbers to that, if you are in that pre-diabetic category, you have about a 5 to 10% chance each year of progressing to type 2 diabetes. And your overall lifetime risk is somewhere around 70 to 80%. So it's identifying the stage um, that puts you at higher risk. So that's number one you might eventually get type 2 diabetes. But the second thing that I wanted to highlight is that even in people that don't progress, that state of prediabetes in of itself is not a healthy place to be. Um, that you know, it's all a continuum from kind of what we would call healthy or non-diabetic to pre-diabetic to type 2. And if you're in that pre-diabetic category, even though you don't have type 2 diabetes, you're at higher risk of cardiovascular disease, hypertension. You're very likely to have obesity. There's even some evidence now that uh, it's associated with higher risk of certain cancers and dementia. So it can be a real wake-up call. Yeah, and I think I'll emphasize what you said. You said it was a continuum. And when we tell you the definition how doctors use, uh, what numbers they use to diagnose people. It's really artificial barriers that you go from pre to full-blown type 2 diabetes. And it's some, it's somewhat artificial in a way. People have to remember that they're not healthy one day when they're pre, and then they're going to be super sick the next day when they get diagnosed with type 2. It happens over time. And having pre-diabetes, there really could be a silver lining that if you become educated and motivated to improve your lifestyle, perhaps medications, we'll talk about that, um, prevent yourself from going on to type 2, but also paying attention to these other quote-unquote cardiovascular risk factors. You get your blood pressure down, your cholesterol down, you start exercising. You don't have to become skinny mini overnight, but it's amazing that all of the risk factors for heart disease are fairly asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. So it's that's the biggest danger. If people started developing, you know, muscle aches when their blood sugars started to creep up slightly above normal, they'd say they'd go to their doctor. They'd get diagnosed early, but that just doesn't happen. So it, it, anything that's asymptomatic can be quite dangerous. And, you know, along those lines, we were talking before we started about this word pre, and it means different things in the, in the medical, you know, literature. Um, and that's actually why there's been a lot of debate about this term pre-diabetes, because if you define somebody as having pre-diabetes, it's not necessarily that they will get type 2. They might. They're at higher risk, but it, they might not get it. But what really has solidified this in our education, our training now, is the recognition that the pre-diabetic state is not a normal state. It is its own kind of unique diagnosis. We can, when we see patients in clinic, we can diagnose them with, with pre-diabetes. We can you know, list it as one of the diagnosis codes. And I think that's what's, what's helped bring awareness around this subject. Very different than like sometimes we say a precancerous lesion. And that usually means that it will absolutely become cancer. And, and prediabetes is a little bit different. But I think, you know, the, the overall message is this is a place that you need to, to wake up and get active. So let's say, okay, we've sufficiently woken people up to, you know, prediabetes. I want to know if I have it. How, how do I diagnose it? What are, the, what are these categories that we've been talking about? Like, so what is normal? What is prediabetic? What is type 2? How do we define that? Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot as we're preparing for this podcast, that the, the diagnosis is based solely on the fasting blood sugar, the first thing in the morning without eating or drinking anything with sugar in it, and then two-hour blood test after drinking 75 grams of glucose, like a sweet syrup. And it doesn't even differentiate type 1 versus type 2. It, okay, so here it is. A normal blood sugar in the morning is less than 100. Mm -hmm. 
if you're between 100 and 126, first thing in the morning without food, that is in the pre-diabetic range. If you have a formal glucose tolerance test, 75 grams of glucose, measuring your glucose pretty much exactly two hours afterwards, your two-hour blood sugar, if it's between 140 and 199, you have pre diabetes. We have fancy terms for that. Impaired fasting glucose and impaired glucose tolerance, but I would just forget all that. It's the fasting and two hour. And we hardly ever do a two hour glucose tolerance. Right. So I was going to say the two main ways we diagnose it actually is based on the fasting and then the A1C. Well, I was going to get to that. Okay. Well, you said exclusively on these two things. You left out A1C. So I just can bring it's you back It's a surrogate to the... marker for glucose. Okay. Go ahead. So You're right. Most You're people right. just don't get a two hour like yeah. glucose tolerance test. So really the two labs that are commonly done is your fasting blood sugar. Um, that's, you know, when you get your lab report, it'll say what your glucose is. And again, like Steve said, less than anything less than 100, normal. 100 to 125, pre-diabetic, 126 and above type 2 diabetes. For the A1C, which is a slightly different test, measures kind of your three-month average, 5.7 or less normal, 5.7 to 6.4 pre-diabetic, 6.5 and above is type 2 diabetes. Exactly. Yeah. And so those are very commonly ordered tests that really anytime you see your primary care doctor, they should be doing, you know, annually. And now that you have this information, you can look at it and see kind of, you know, where you fall, which is really helpful. Yeah. And if you, we're going to go through some of the risk factors that are associated uh, with pre-diabetes and the more risk factors you have, the closer you should be following yourself. Mm -hmm. And once again, I'll just emphasize that, you know, if you have a fasting blood sugar of 124, um, you know, that's, that's still pre-diabetes. You're not really that much healthier than if you were 127, which is type two diabetes. And that's the point. Um, and I think we, we were speaking before the podcast that it turns out that the closer you are to getting diagnosed with type two, the closer you are to these upper guidelines, um, the higher risk, the more risk factors you have. Right. So even within a category, you know, say you're within the pre-diabetic category, your fasting blood sugars, you know, 103, you're in a lot better place than if your fasting blood sugars 123. Still, still like pre-diabetes, but basically the lower is the better. Now, yeah. you know, sometimes people say 126, that's kind of a funny number. Where does that come from? And, um, you know, why is that our definition of, of diabetes? And it's, it's kind of interesting. There are some scientific reasons that once you get to that, you know, fasting blood sugar, we know for sure that insulin secretion is, you know, impaired. The other reason is that 126 equals exactly, um, so we use 126 milligrams per deciliter, equals exactly seven millimoles per liter, which is what the Europeans use and things like that. So it's a much more even number for them. For us, it's kind of a wonky number. Yeah, there's all kinds of epidemiologic studies yeah. looking at A1C, and complications of diabetes, like eye and kidney disease. And it turns out that, you know, you're still pretty safe when you get up to 6.5, and then the risk of complications goes up after that. All right, so now we know we care about this diagnosis, you know, the, the risks, you know, how to define it. People can easily get screened. Um, but who are the people that are increased risk um, that should be particularly worried about developing prediabetes? Yeah, there's a whole laundry list, and I'll go through some. You jump in there, too. But I think one of the biggest risks is having a first-degree relative with type 2 diabetes. So your parents and your sister, your brother, and believe it or not, your chances go up to 30%. That's huge. You know, it's a really interesting 
point because there's different perceptions in the, the community. You know, type 2, we know, is a highly genetic disease, um, but people really have a lot of shame and blame about it. You know, like, oh, I got this because I ate myself into it, I'm overweight, and I have a lot of guilt, like, whatever. Um, and then people feel differently about type 1, and they think, oh, that must just be, like, genetic, whatever. It's actually flipped. That type 2 is the profoundly more genetic disease. And if you have identical twins and one has type 2, there's a 100% chance that the other twin will have type 2 diabetes. It's... It really does run in your genes. And it doesn't mean that you're doomed from, you know, being birthed. It just means that you are at higher risk if it runs in your family. Yeah, I think that's the point you made also, Jeremy, about shame and, and guilt. I mean, a lot of patients get shamed and guilted by their own family members. Uncle John just ate himself into diabetes. And our society does that. They, they say, oh, you know, he must have ate a lot of sugar when he was young or she was young. And, you know, so that's really important that it's part of the genetic tendency to get type 2. You're born with that genetic mm-hmm. tendency. So that's, that's a really important issue. Yeah. So certainly if it runs in your, in your family, um, other things that come up, you know, very commonly is that if a woman during pregnancy has gestational, gestational why, why diabetes. Why just women? <laughs> um, you know, they're at higher risk of pregnancy, I suppose, than men. Um, but um, that was a joke. Uh, but <laughs> anyways, so if you have gestational uh, diabetes during your pregnancy, um, it puts you at a, a much higher risk of getting type 2 later on in life. And so what typically happens for women when they're pregnant, they might have elevated blood sugars during pregnancy, and then it kind of, quote, unquote, goes away um, after they give birth. Um, but it just kind of unveils, if you will, a, a sign of insulin resistance and kind of predisposition for type 2 diabetes. Yeah, and even if a woman's undiagnosed um, and she has a baby over nine pounds, that's a little red flag that that woman should be checked for diabetes because if the gl- glucose is not under good control during uh, gestation, the baby will be bigger than normal. You know all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But the other thing for our listeners is any woman out there that has polycystic ovary disease mm-hmm. um, and that is a condition that's highly associated with insulin resistance and the, the ultimate uh, development of type 2. Yeah. And then we, we mentioned earlier that, that your weight, you know, is, is, is really, really important. And it's not just the weight that, you know, is on the scale. We really look at somebody's BMI, which takes into account your weight based on how tall you are. So it's very different if you weigh 200 pounds and you're six foot four versus if you weigh 200 pounds and you're five foot four. Um, so you can easily go on, you know, Google and, and, and look up your BMI, just enter your height and weight. And here's kind of the cutoffs for that. Anything less than 25, we call normal. Between 25 and 30 is the overweight category. And then over 30 is, you know, the medical definition of obesity. And as soon as you are overweight, you become at a higher risk of prediabetes. But certainly once you get into that obese category, um, you should be, you know, really kind of vigilant about, you know, testing your blood sugars, you know, with your provider to see and screen for prediabetes. Yeah. And the, the other part that goes along with obesity is what we call metabolic syndrome. I've already mentioned it a few times, but people with prediabetes and type 2 have a higher uh, rate of high blood pressure, abnormal cholesterol levels, and I don't want to get too detailed, but also a higher propensity to develop blood clots, which is why a lot of folks are on baby dose aspirin or, or stronger blood thinners, depending on the, the particular situation. The other thing, Jeremy, which is huge, there are certain ethnic groups that are hit yeah. much harder. So African-Americans, Latinos, uh, Pacific Islanders, 
really big in Native American yeah. Indians and also Asian Indians. Do we know why? No, it's a genetic issue. Um, and we do know that when you look at the rates in those ethnic groups, it's really high. You used to do a, a kind of dedicated taking control of your diabetes conference for Native Americans, right? Yes, of course, we, we did. used to go to Hawaii every year too, and that you know Pacific Islanders. Anything you want to say about that? Yeah, we, someone has to educate those folks, and that's why we did go to Hawaii every year. Um, you know what? It's a it, it's a serious issue, um, and I'll just say Native Americans. Um, they they're a particularly uh, hit hard ethnic group, and I think that the statistic show that fifty percent of Native Americans over the age of 50 have type 2. And they've just sort of, uh, some of them have just lost hope. And that's why it's important to reach out to these folks. And the reason why we put on conferences for Native American folks uh, only, we didn't really keep it only, but it was because they they really wanted to have their own environment. They, we, we got uh, healthcare professionals who knew a lot about diabetes who were Native Americans themselves. And I think that really opened the door for them to learn. And it's just a group that really needs a lot of attention, you know, and, you know, Caucasians do as well, too. But it's a particularly sensitive group. And I'm glad you mentioned it. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's maybe transition a little bit to some of the the good news, what to do about it. Um, And I I really do think there is some good news here. And, you know, we are fortunate to be joined by you, Dr. Steve Edelman, (laughs) um, who worked for years on in NIH, you know, uh, huge study with with thousands of patients um, for the, called the Diabetes Prevention Program, really studying for you know the for, maybe not the first time, but in the largest scale interventions to prevent you know people from going on to type two diabetes. And you want to talk about that things yeah. that you learned or what that was like? Sure, I'll talk about it a little bit. You know, but it was basically ten years of my life planning, running it with with a group of other great investigators, and they're still doing extension follow-up on these folks. But basically, in a nutshell, we screened the country uh, with the different groups, and ours in San Diego, for people that had pre-diabetes. And we stuck right to the definition. They came in for a glucose tolerance test. We did the one hour, the two hour, and the A1C. And if they fit in any of those categories, they were given the opportunity to join the, the study. And they were randomized to either The first group was what we called intensive lifestyle. That's it. And um, we gave them exercise machines. We bought them tennis shoes. We had an exercise physiologist. And the goal was to lose 7% of their body weight and exercise 30 minutes five times a week. You know, it's funny because that's, we're going to talk about that now that Next is that that's our recommendation now to target 7% body weight loss. And that actually has like profound positive effects. Where did that number come from in the first place? You you know what? I don't know. Uh, But I I do know that now the uh, Surgeon General at that time, and it has continued with the other Surgeon Generals, that that's the national recommendation for exercise. 30 minutes, five days a week. And this is not like, you know on your Peloton going 100 cycle, you know, revolutions a second. It's uh, walking. Right, but I was talking about the 7% body weight Yeah, loss I don't then. know. Okay. All right, so that was intensive lifestyle. Try to lose 7% of your body weight. Try to exercise 150 minutes, which again is now our like current recommendation. Uh, what was the other arm? Okay, there were three other arms, but <clears throat> one arm was metformin or glucophage. This is the most common oral medication we use in type 2, as you know. Uh, and we just gave it to people a little earlier Normally, we'd give it to them when they're diagnosed. This is pre. 
diagnosed. So no lifestyle intervention there, just take this drug. Thank you for clarifying. And then we had a a group that went on to a drug called troglitazone, which is very similar to pioglitazone, which is the oral medication Actos. It's it's what we call an insulin sensitizer. And then we had a group that we just, uh, kind of a placebo group. Okay. And we use that as a comparison. And uh, So lifestyle versus metformin versus pioglitazone versus kind of like, you know, natural history, I would call it. Like yeah. see how this evolves. One thing that was really interesting is that, well, first I'll say that the average age of the person that entered the study, a couple thousand, was 50 years of age. Mm-hmm. Half women, half men. Um, and their BMI was 34 which meant that they're in the obese category. Mm-hmm. They all had central obesity. And the one thing that always struck me is that they were relatively healthy. Yeah. They didn't have strokes. They didn't have heart attacks yet. Uh, and then I would leave the clinical research site, which was at the Whittier Institute. I'd walk across the street to my UCSD diabetes clinic. and It was like a time warp. It was like 15 years ahead. I would see patients that were 65, so many medical problems. And where they could have intervened earlier. Now, the other thing I want to say is if people screened out of the study, let's say their fasting was 127. We give them a formal letter. from Screened the, out because they had type 2. Right. So, the, okay. They were thank too you. advanced to do the study. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting, you know, I, I, I'm assuming everyone's following me. But thanks for clarifying. So, we gave them a really formal looking letter. NIH letterhead that you have you are now diagnosed with type 2 diabetes based on the glucose tolerance test. Please present this to your doctor. And you know what happened, Jeremy? We heard back from patients. I started a support group for the people that could not get in the study. Um, they said their doctors just said, ah, those guys are crazy. You too, don't, too aggressive. Too this aggressive. You don't have nothing to worry about. It was a consistent theme. So can't blame people for not doing anything if your own caregiver blows off the the data yeah so then overall the results you want to yeah. talk about what what you found yeah well overall the results of metformin reduced the chances of type 2 diabetes by 30 percent it worked mostly in younger heavier patients that's all the sub-analysis and the, the the intensive lifestyle group worked the best in all categories but let me just say this that it we, was about a 50 percent reduction yeah. thereabouts so, yeah yeah and no, that's important. Cutting your, your your risk of progression of type 2 diabetes in half by targeting the 7% body weight, you know, 150 minutes of exercise well, a week. E- even if we couldn't prevent it, uh, these folks got educated and then they were followed closely. So when they finally went over the curve and they were diagnosed, uh, they were ready to go with early treatment. They were already improving lifestyle, uh, their lifestyle already. But here's the thing, Jeremy. We had something like 20 staff members working on our site. Mm-hmm. Okay, 15 of the 20 staff members that worked full-time for our site focused only on the lifestyle group. Mm. And the rest, the other five people just counted the pills uh, that they were supposed to be taking right. when they came in for their visits. So it does take work, does take support, takes a team. Yeah, and I think that's the two sides of this story, right? Is that it works if you can do it. 
But, you know, how realistic is it? How practical? I mean, you talk to anybody who's overweight or certainly obese, they want to lose weight. They've been trying, you know, for a, a long time. And, you know, so what can we tell these people? So, you know, because of this study and others, those are now our official recommendations. You target 7% of your body weight, you know, loss. What does that mean? If you're 200 pounds, you know, that's, you know, not, you know, 10 pounds or so that you're trying to lose. That would be 5%. Um, so we, we actually say typically somewhere between 5 and 10% you try to lose. Um, and the, the velocity that you want to lose that at is, you know, if you can lose half a pound to up to a pound a week, you're doing a really good job. So if you want to lose 10 pounds, that, you know, could take 10 weeks or more. So it's about setting these realistic kind of small, you know, achievable goals and trying to adhere to it. And when it comes to the exercise, I think we made the point, you know, it's not like all of a sudden you told these people to run a marathon. It's 30 minutes a day, something realistic, you know, walking around the block doesn't mean you need spandex, doesn't mean you need a gym membership. Speak for yourself. (laughs) You can wear spandex. You look good at it. Um, (laughs) But this is what we tell people now that, um, and I think if you just set that out, you know, that this is, these are our goals, we're going to work over the next six months to try to achieve them. That can obviously be really, really helpful. And if you achieve this, you can cut your risk of type 2 diabetes in half. Like, so there is some, some lining or silver lining there with just, you know, kind of these lifestyle interventions alone. Yeah, and you made it such a great point. You got to take it slow. If you try these crazy weight loss diets and, you know, things you see on television, the faster you lose it, the faster you're going to get it back. Yeah. So you want to develop lifelong habits. You know, it's so true. Now, in terms of other medications, we do use metformin for people that have prediabetes. It's, it's been around forever. It's cheap. It's, a, it's efficacious. Um, some of the downsides are that when you take it, it can have some gastrointestinal effects. And it, it, it doesn't help people lose weight per se. It can help with their progression to type 2 diabetes. So we do use it. But we do now have some very powerful weight loss drugs, which we've talked about in other podcasts. Our second podcast was completely on weight loss strategies. And kind of the, the good news is that if somebody, if you are diagnosed with obesity, there are weight loss medications that, that work really, really, really well. Um, but the diagnosis of prediabetes in of itself, you might not you might not qualify for some of these drugs. And so we're using them for people in type 2 diabetes, people that are obese, people that have, you know, risk of heart failure, et cetera. And I'm talking about the GLP-1s and SGLT2s. Um, but I think it'll be a very, you know, soon day, hopefully, that we start using this sooner. Why wait for somebody to get type 2 diabetes before treating them with these amazing medications? Yeah, you know, Jeremy, part of the problem is I don't, I don't want to get down on our FDA uh, they're an important organization that keeps us all safe, but they never really gave enough attention to prediabetes. And the reason why we don't have a lot of studies at some of the newer drugs you're talking about, especially the GLP-1 receptor agonists like Ozembic, even Monjaro, <laughs> and uh, Trulicity, these are drugs that lower glucose, lower weight. And in my mind, there's no question they would prevent the progression, uh, or if not stop it of people with type 2 diabetes but the problem is if there's no formal uh, indication for them for prediabetes if the FDA says prediabetes is we're not going to give you the indication for Mm prediabetes why do these 100 200 million dollar studies for an indication that they will never get so I'm getting into the political part no it's political but it it pertains to patients too because I have seen people with prediabetes but aren't obese and don't qualify for some of these drugs. And it's it's almost like, well, I can't treat you, but if you gained weight, then I could? I mean, it makes no sense. Yeah, it makes no sense at all. And, you know, 
Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of studies for prediabetes. There's Actos has been proven, uh, but Actos does have its own baggage and a drug called Acrobos. We don't use that anymore. Uh, you know, so we, we, we don't really have uh, approved drugs that we think could really work. Metformin can work a little bit especially if you're younger and right. heavier. But I do think the GLP-1s and then the way you rattle off the SGLT-2s like Jardiance, Farziga, those probably will too, but I have to say probably because I just do not know. So this would be my recommendation. Tell me if you agree. If someone's diagnosed with prediabetes is, first of all, mindset. This is an opportunity, not you know doom and gloom. Second of all would be, you know, getting serious about some of these lifestyle modifications, targeting, you know, write it down. I want to get down to 180 pounds or whatever, you know, 7% or so would be and put that out, you know, over the next six months or so. Um, getting serious about some form of exercise, some form of activity, I would just call it. And then when it comes to medications, ask your provider about metformin and then maybe some of these other obesity drugs, GLP-1s, you know, as a, you know, again, being approved for obesity, but attacking it from these different places. And I've seen people, and I know you have too, Steve, that have turned their lives around, um, not just, you know, reducing their risk of type two, but just losing weight, feeling better, more energetic, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, um, you know, if you are over overweight, let's say a BMI over 28 or 30, and you have other risk factors, you will get a, you might get approved for these expensive higher dose GLP-1. So the first one is high dose Victoza that they call Saxenda. Mm -hmm. The second one is a high dose Ozembic called Wegovi. And the third one is not quite approved for obesity yet, uh, but it's going to be called Monjaro. Mm -hmm. And Trulicity uh, does have higher doses now. So have your caregiver go to battle for you. Yeah. And if you can get your weight down, that's probably one of the single most important things sure. you can do. And you can't get rid of your parents, unfortunately, because you got the genes from them. Uh, and of course, you know, I can't emphasize enough, you know, lifestyle. You, you and I, we're not dietitians. We're not exercise physiologists. But we know that when you're older and heavier, which most people with prediabetes are, it's tougher to adapt some of these uh, lifestyle modifications. Yeah. Let me just say the other thing, Jeremy, is that you and I see patients with type 2, and you might say, you know, who has type 2 in your family? And they mention everybody. You mentioned both your parents. If you're both your parents have type 2, your chances are 100%. So you may not be able to prevent it 100% in everybody, but you can at least do all the other things, improve all those things that we talked about with metabolic syndrome, uh, and you will live longer uh, for it. For sure. And I think that's the ultimate message and something we're always preaching here at taking control of your diabetes is like, you know, get educated, get motivated, take control, and you'll live a longer, healthier, happier life, you know, because of it. So I think this has been fun talking through this with you. And, you know, I always like hearing about your, your experiences, especially with that, you know, the diabetes prevention program. But Thanks, Steve. Hope if you're out there listening that, you know, this has provided you some education and if you have prediabetes, some motivation to, to take control of it. Hey, Jeremy, it's pre-lunch. Let's go. Uh, yeah, let's go. All right. Take care, everybody.